Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our Lord is a great, powerful king who does bring low princes. He humbles the proud and he exalts the lowly. And so as we come before him, we confess our sins. And in that way, he does uh, exalt. He lifts up the lowly. Our call to confession is Romans 13 this morning. Hear God's word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Thus far the reading of God's word. The Bible tells us here to honor the established government. And we'll see in 1 Samuel this morning that the Spirit came on Saul to call out the army. And the Spirit came on Israel to listen to him. And that's an example of uh, obeying the the ruler there. The ruler is there to enforce justice and righteousness in his sphere, to be a minister for good, not for evil. Now, we know this line is crossed when the government asks us to do something wicked or to refrain from doing something that we must do, right? We have examples in the Bible of this. When When the king told Daniel, told the whole empire to pray only to the king, Daniel prayed to God anyway. Uh, when the Sanhedrin told the apostles not to preach about Jesus, they said right away they couldn't refrain. But when the government calls for taxes, speed limits, zoning in a city, and so on, we need to obey them. So there's two clear categories there. There's also a third where things are not so clear. And uh, to not distract from a confession of sin right now, I'm going to save that category for later and talk about it in another way. But this ought to prompt us toward confession as we tend to be an independent and defiant people toward civil authority. But but the Bible doesn't allow that to be our default position. We want to always seek the welfare of our community, not our own convenience or autonomy. So let's confess our own sins before Almighty God. Please kneel if you're able to do so, and I'll lead us in a prayer at this time. God's Word to read the sermon text, 1 Samuel chapter 11. Going back to just taking one chapter at a time here in our sermons. Let's read God's inerrant Word once again, 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then Nachash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nachash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. 
the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. And now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the, three, put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great story. One of the key uh, shapes that stories take in our lives. Reminds me of an event that I uh, witnessed. I was taking a, a speaker, you know him, Pastor Strawbridge. Uh, he was speaking at a conference that we were putting on. It was an outdoor conference. We got to the pavilion where we were meeting. I was driving him there. We got out, stepped out of the car, and there right in front of us was a serpent, a snake, just like we saw in Genesis 3. And that snake was in the process of eating, what was it, a rabbit? A small rabbit. It was amazing. So there it just laid very quietly because it's, it's working on this rabbit, right? So it's alive. So there we sit, and Pastor Strawbridge says to me, you got a baseball bat or something around? And he takes the bat, and he clubbed that serpent several times till it was dead, picked it up with the bat, and threw it in the woods. Fascinating story. I'll never forget it. Uh, and that's the story of the serpent crusher. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus did for us, right? It's the promise in Genesis 3 that we read. God gives the promise to Adam and Eve. One of your offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. Well, believe it or not, uh, this story, this chapter, is a picture of that. Uh, when you see the word nachash at the beginning 
I'm pronouncing that in the Hebrew way. I'm doing that on purpose. That's how the Hebrew would say it. And the word literally means serpent. Nachash is serpent. In Genesis 3, when it says, now the serpent was more cunning, the Hebrew says, now the Nachash was more cunning. Same word. The name is exactly the same. I don't know what leads a, a mother to name their child serpent, but it happens in this Ammonite's case. Now the serpent went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. What's going on here, and before I go further, let me back up and give you a, a bit of uh, structure, a bit of context here. I'm, uh, I don't always follow the outline real carefully. Today I'm going to do that. You see the four points. And under each of the four, I've even got a, a clear structure going. So uh, every time we come, come to a new point in the outline, I've got three moves I'm going to make. Uh, one is looking at the text and some of the doctrine in that. And the second move will be, how, what does this mean in our lives personally? And then third, what does this mean in our world more generally, in our culture? And look at each of those three under each of these four points. So uh, we've already looked a little bit at uh, the text, uh, the threat of the serpent, right? Uh, a threat has entered Eden, right? The, the serpent has entered the promised land. Just as in Genesis 3, the serpent entered the Garden of Eden. The serpent comes in and attacks. And Saul is another Adam, right, who might crush the serpent's head. Adam failed to do it, right? He just stands there and lets the serpent tempt Eve. Uh, but one of his offspring is going to come and crush that serpent. And it turns out Saul does it. Saul uh, crushes this serpent's head, sends him fleeing. So that's, that's the basic text here of the first three verses, the threat of the serpent. How does this look in our own lives? Notice that Nachash was not willing to have surrendered subjects. It's quite something what he says, right? That Israel is willing to be servants to the Ammonite, which is a bad thing in the first place. They shouldn't even allow that. But they have no power. They, they can't do, they're just trying to save their lives at this point. But Nachash says, I'll, I'll let you surrender if you let me gouge out all your eyes, all your right eyes. Wow. There's a point there. Uh, the serpent, the evil one, in relation to us, he doesn't just want people to serve. He wants to hurt us. He wants to humiliate us, right? Jesus tells us the evil one comes to hurt and to kill, to destroy. We have to remember that, that when we think of the serpent, of the evil one, our adversary. The serpent wants to humiliate and to subject and destroy people. He's not trying to help us. He wants to hurt us. You can't make a peace treaty with sin or with Satan. That we're in an irreconcilable war with our enemy and we have to fight every day. Every day of our life we're going to undergo spiritual attack. And we have to train ourselves to recognize it and to resist. Now the key of resisting, what Jabesh does is they call to Israel for help. Right? The key means of resisting is calling to the Lord Jesus for help, just as Jabesh calls to Israel and, and Saul responds. There is a deliverer. Saul's a, a picture of Jesus in this chapter. So uh, we have to be careful. The evil one is out to hurt us. Uh, and what does this mean? Time for the third move in this point. What does this mean in our culture? Well, there's an interesting question here. Why on earth does uh, 
Nachash give, uh, give them seven days. It's a weird thing to ask, and we wonder, why would he do that? Why give them time to get more help? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, well, the point is that if Nachash can subdue even more of Israel this way, why not do it? Right? If nobody shows up, or if whoever shows up he defeats also, then he's got even more territory. And that's what he's after. And that's what the evil one's always after. More territory, more ground. He's, they're going to take as much as they can get. As much as we give them. That's another scheme of the enemy. To take as much ground as is given. Maybe the evil one uh, can not only make you, yourself, kind of bitter and angry at something that's happened. Maybe he can get your whole family that way. If he gets you and you pass it on to your family, right? All kinds of ways we can apply that. Uh, maybe a whole academic or political movement springs up founded on ungodly principles. Right now we're seeing physical attacks and intimidation of people simply for supporting a, pol a political candidate. It's amazing. As Ronald Reagan used to say, freedom is just one generation away from being lost in any society. The threat is real. Again, there is a deliverer, right? In our national moment right now, we're tempted to believe that salvation is of one political party over another. And I'm not going to deny there's some reality to that, but only Jesus can save us, not politics. Our president even had the wisdom to say that himself in his last speech this week. Salvation is not from government. If we humble ourselves, if we turn from our wicked ways, God will forgive. God will heal our land. That's what it's about. That's why Jabesh cries out for deliverance to all Israel. That's the first three verses. Then we come to Saul's call to arms. The news comes to Saul, verses 4 and 5. And Saul, again, he's acting as an Adam here. He's set as ruler in the garden. And right away, he confronts a serpent, a Nachash. What's he going to do? Is he going to stop it? And verse 6, the spirit comes upon Saul. And now, and again, think text, think doctrine here, think all of the Bible. The spirit comes on who else? The apostles at Pentecost, right? In Acts 2. And it equips them for holy war. So what it does, it's a different kind of war. They preach the gospel and they, they conquer nations uh, by converting them to Christ. But it's a similar thing. Uh, just like there, there was a rushing wind. Here the Spirit rushes upon Saul. It's the same kind of idea. Uh, Jesus was baptized, and the Spirit came down on him. And the Spirit took him into the desert uh, for the battle with the serpent. The Spirit comes on the apostles. They fight a different kind of battle. That's what's happening here. So, that's the first thing, seeing the text there in verses 4 through 7. We'll look at some more of it as we make these other moves. But what's the second move? What does this look like in your life? First, notice in verse 6, the first result of the Spirit coming on Saul is a surprising one to us. His anger is greatly kindled. Anger. The first result, this isn't usually what we think of as the fruit of the Spirit. Anger? I thought that was on the other side. I think it's even listed on the other side, right? But there is a righteous anger that we have when we hear news of the serpent invading and hurting God's people. Which one of you hasn't been agitated by the news lately? 
right? There's a, there's a natural, by the Spirit, normal response of upset at things that are going on. What we do with it is the key. What we do with it is key. Saul does not take to Twitter or to Facebook, <laughs> right? He doesn't rant about it as we're tempted to do. Instead, what Saul does is he gives up himself to lead Israel. And I think it's, it's a tiny stretch, but I think it's an easy one to make here. In verse 6 and 7, Saul's coming in out of the field behind the oxen. And then verse 7, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces. I'm pretty sure he's taking the very oxen that he was just driving in the field, cutting them up, sending them to Israel. He's taking his own oxen. Oxen, that's a heavy expense, right? That's like a capital investment. That's, you know, seed money for starting your small business kind of hefty chunk of five or six digit change in our uh, parlance, right? Uh, Paul, Saul is simply cutting that up, doing away with it. He can't use it anymore. But this is critical. This is important. This is a moment when it's time to give up that much to get all Israel together to defend Israel. So Saul's anger, uh, spirit-led anger leads him to give of himself to lead Israel. It's a, a fascinating move. So uh, Saul calls, call, make, gives out a call to arms. The uh, second point of this, in, in how, does, how does this look in our lives? Uh, when we're in need, as Jabesh Gilead is here, Jesus will respond and he will send help. He's already given us the spirit. He rouses his people to bring help. Right? Jabesh looks to Israel, they look to Saul in distress. When you're in distress, look to the Lord Jesus. Look to his church for help. And you might find that help from some unlikely places. You know, Saul's coming in from the field. He's, he's probably been farming. Not likely as a military commander, as it seems. And that's the same with Jesus on this earth, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Or Isaiah 53, he had no form or comeliness that we should esteem him. Even today in our doubting moments, we think, can Jesus really help? Is he really going to do anything here? Yes. Though it looks unlikely, Jesus will respond. Last point very quickly on this, what this looks like in our own lives. There is a time to meet the threat of temptation forcefully. And that's what Saul does here. His call to arms, cutting up his oxen, sending them out, and basically threatening Israel, giving a civil penalty. If you don't come out for the draft, this is the penalty. This is what's going to happen to your oxen. It's a civil fine. You know, we think of that in bad terms today, like people are, re the government's requiring us to wear a mask or we're going to have to pay $500. What in the world? Well, the legitimacy is that question there. Here it is not. Right? And it's a civil government thing. And it's, we'll talk about that more in a second. But in, the, in a personal way, there's a time to meet the threat of temptation forcefully. Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount, right? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Deal with that serpent individually, forcefully. But yeah, back to the government, the, the, the third move here. What does this look like in, in the world more at large? The state acts on fear of coercion. And that is not an inherently bad thing. <laughs> and we see it used here for good. Used here for good. Saul is threatening the coercion, but verse 7, the fear of Yahweh comes on them. Not the fear of Saul. Not the fear of the fine, necessarily. 
fear of Yahweh. Right? This is an obedient, godly direction that Saul is going. So this, this consolidation of power, remember the gifts they brought to Saul at the end of the last chapter, right? That there's this consolidation of power to enable a sufficiently strong defense against other hostile nations. That the state is designed to be a positive agent of God to, pro- to protect its people from harm. That's what's going on. Not to put too fine a point on it, but it's a very good thing when there are National Guard troops that we can call in to quell riots, to restore order, to minimize damage to property and life. That's a God-designed thing. In Psalm 147, uh, the psalmist praises God because he strengthens the bars of your gates and he makes peace in your borders. Those are quotes, Psalm 147. And I'll never forget, I read somewhere I came across Luther's comment on that. Uh, Martin Luther, he said, Do you know how God does those things? With good governors and wise rulers. Those are the ones who strengthen the bars. Those are the ones who make peace in your borders. Right. That's a real blessing from God that we're seeing him remove from us in part right now. Uh, And we need to appreciate that blessing. Well, one other thing on on this uh, section here where Jabesh is calling for help and Saul responds. Uh, Consider that Jabesh Gilead, uh, there's a lot of Judges connections in here. I can't get to them all, but here's one. Uh, Jabesh Gilead in Judges 21, they did not respond to Israel's call to go fight against Benjamin. Remember when Benjamin, Gibeah, uh, did that awful thing? And then all of Israel gathered and said, we're not letting that happen. Give up those men. And Gibeah said, no. And so all of Israel came out and fought against Benjamin. Well, Jabesh, Gilead, refused to go and fight against Benjamin. They didn't go. And so uh, some other things happened at the end of Judges because of that. But notice that. Now the very, those very people, Jabesh, Gilead, they cry out for help against the serpent. Even though they wouldn't go out and help the rest of Israel, now they call out to Israel for help. Huh. That gets really tempting to just say, oh, how do you like it now that the shoe's on the other foot, huh? Now you need help and you expect us to help you, but you wouldn't help us out last year. What do you do then? Should they be pitied? The Spirit comes upon Saul and says, yes, compassion, help. Don't hold their past sin against them so that you refuse to help them the next time. And so God uses the man from Benjamin. (laughs) The irony is deep here, right? Benjamin was the one that sinned in Judges. And Israel wants to resist that sin, put it down. God uses the man from Benjamin to deliver Jabesh in spite of its past. So there's a a note there of more uh, social life. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in, in the church at large, whatever it is, where you know of a... These people did this bad thing a few years back. But is that going to shape your whole relationship with them moving forward? Maybe it should not. Maybe forgiveness and compassion, your responsibility to defend God's people, uh, should inform you more. That's point two. Saul gives a call to arms. Third, Saul's success. In verses 7 to 11, you see his actual victory. Uh, The more... uh, 
connections with the judges here. Uh, Saul divides the company into three sections. That's what Gideon did. Uh, Gideon had 3,000. Well, there's all these threes uh, in this text as there was in Gideon's. Uh, Saul is, is like the, the judges who deliver God's people. Uh, he's also like Jesus who defends Israel against its enemies. Saul here crushes the head of the serpent as Jesus did. Uh, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil at Calvary. And Saul's a hint of this king of kings. So it's a, a wonderful picture of this victory. Uh, in a, on a personal level, move to here, right? What does this mean for you? It, it means that Jesus won this victory over the serpent for you. For you. You're one of these people in Jabesh Gilead whose lives are saved from the serpent who is going to gouge out their eyes at the very least. And uh, the king of, of Israel has won the victory over that serpent, saved you. The, his success is yours. The serpent was out to bite you, and Jesus stopped him. This is why I read from Matthew 11. It's one of my favorite passages of, what Je, of Jesus' short little vignettes, right, about the strong man. How Jesus says, if there's a strong man who's got all his stuff in his house, he and his stuff are safe because he's strong. But if somebody stronger than him comes and plunders him, what's he going to do? And the point of that, I believe, Jesus says, I'm the stronger one. And I've come to Satan's house, and I'm going to plunder his stuff, which is you and me. I'm going to take his stuff away. I'm not going to let Satan hold you captive anymore. That's Jesus. And just like Saul with Jabesh here, he comes with the army, and he puts down that serpent with force and frees us. He's your commander-in-chief from Revelation 19, riding on a white horse, strong to save, striking the nations with his sword. As we see what's going on in the news, I hope that becomes more and more relevant to you, right? We see that sometimes there is force needed to put down evil. We haven't seen a whole lot of that in the last 50 years in our country. It's coming back around, perhaps. But again, on a, on a culture uh, world stage, this is just straight up military defense. This is what a government should do. Take some resources from the people to organize, plan, and coordinate the best defense possible. A government that won't defend its people from all enemies, foreign and domestic, is not doing its basic job. Saul comes led by the Spirit, and he does it. Jesus Christ, theologically, Jesus, uh, with regard to our sins, has done the same. Last point is that Israel embraces Saul, verses 12 to 14. And you get the sense here that before now, before this battle, there was kind of this wait-and-see posture, right? You always have this with new leaders. It's like, oh, we'll wait and see how this new president does. And then, but he has this huge victory early on. And so all the people embrace him. They want to put to death everybody who didn't, which is your key, right? So let's talk a bit about anointing, because here they make Saul king again. And a, a chapter back at the end, they anoint Saul publicly. And then a chapter back from that, Samuel anoints Saul secretly. Right? There's kind of this three-stage process. Secret anointing, public anointing, and then he's really accepted by everybody here. So uh, that's key. Um, note the parallel there with Jesus Christ, the ultimate king of kings. Jesus was anointed by God before he even came to earth. 
right? His anointing was also secret for a time. He didn't let his disciples tell the crowds who he was. He spoke in parables to hide the fact. And then when it became obvious that Jesus was claiming to be Messiah, many didn't believe. And from the week of his death and before, through his resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, many did not believe. But many others did accept his reign, and it was public. And one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You have a small picture of that here. Everybody's going to say, who is it who doesn't want to have Saul be king? Who is it who doesn't want to have Jesus be king? Let's deal with them. That day's coming. That day is coming, and every knee will bow. Well, that anointing, uh, notice that, remember your um, theology, that doesn't just apply to Jesus, right? Uh, All of us, the Heidelberg Catechism says that we are all anointed. We are called Christians because we share in Christ's anointing. I encourage you to look it up this afternoon. Heidelberg 32, it's great. It says, by faith I'm a member of Christ, so I share in his anointing to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life and afterward, to reign with Christ over all creation. So it's all right there, everything we're talking about today. We share in Christ's anointing. That anointing, what does it do? Well, it it equips us for battle, and it says we're going to reign with Christ. Just as Jesus is the king, he he makes us kings and priests as well. It's wonderful. Uh, Some of my family have been watching uh, The Crown recently. I don't know if you know that uh, uh, TV series about uh, Queen Elizabeth and how she came to the throne and how uh, it depicts that. It's quite uh, wonderful. We just watched the episode recently about the coronation ceremony. And you have this family, and I'm not sure how accurate the the series is, but it portrays Elizabeth's family as a bunch of cynical, self-seeking jerks, basically, of many of them at least. And they're taken through this coronation ceremony in which there's an anointing Right? The Church of England believes that the king, the queen of England, is the head of the church. The priest anoints them uh, to that office. And they depict very well. The whole family is moved and touched by it. They're never going to treat Elizabeth the same again because she's been anointed. In that same way, we ought to realize each of us has been touched. We've been anointed by the Lord Jesus. We don't live the same way ever again. So this anointing is, is key. Last move on that point, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, in the world, in, on the world stage, in our culture, uh, in the book of Judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Right? Here's a time in this chapter where Israel willingly accepts Saul's rule. Saul, God really, Saul it gets that undone. No longer is Israel just doing whatever they want. Saul puts out a call for arms, and they obey. And they rejoice in King Saul. This is a high point in Saul's rule, in Israel's rule. Here's a time. There are moments in national life like this, where the rightful king or leader, or the right move, the righteousness, is recognized and acknowledged. It looks likely that it's just because, maybe it's just because Saul won this battle and staved off disaster, right? You can take it cynically that way if you want to. Then you have to watch out for pragmatism, right? Just because Saul won a battle, is that why? Or or are they really accepting the Lord? I always have to be careful of that. But we ought to rejoice in those moments. 
as Saul leads the people to do. Uh, Saul, here in verse, um, which verse is it? Verse 12 and 13. When, when they say, bring those men and put them to death, the one who didn't want Saul at first. Uh, then uh, Saul says, verse 13, no, no, don't do that. Saul does not give ground to grumblers who want to punish Israelites for not accepting him at first. And notice here the, the cunning of the serpent, right? Because the threat doesn't stop. The external threat has been dealt with. Whenever you have that, you deal with the external threat, start looking out for an internal threat. Because that's what happens right here. They deal with Nachash, and now they've got criticizers and carpers within Israel. Now they want to divide the body. And now they want to uh, sow dissension like that. Be careful of that. Saul defends against that too. He's doing well. He's defending against all enemies. I guess we could apply that in some ways. I I don't want to bring news into this too much because it's, well, there's just so much. But think of it. There are external threats to us right now. And there are internal threats, right? You have not only rioters to protect your house against, you also have the sin in your son or the sin in your spouse or the sin in yourself to guard against. Saul shows us the way. He's a picture of Jesus who deals with the external threat of the serpent by crushing his head at the cross, atoning for you, justifying you, and he's dealing with the internal threat by sanctifying you through his spirit. It's a wonderful chapter to meditate upon. Don't forget the peace offerings at the end again. The point here is to celebrate God's deliverance, his keeping his covenant promises, and to do so in worship. In worship. We gather every week to renew the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what Saul called, Samuel calls Israel to do. We gather every week to hear God's word, to sit under the king at his table and feast. That's why I sent out that uh, article in the email about bring the noise, right? The, the greatest, the best response we can give uh, to the upsetting stuff we see going on in the world is to come here, acknowledge the king, offer up our peace offerings, worship the Lord, rejoice greatly in the salvation that he has brought for us that will overwhelm all of this worldly stuff going on and rejoice. The joy of the Lord is your strength, people of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the good news in your word that we have a king who has brought the victory. Thank you for Saul's victory, pointing to Christ's. Thank you for his uh, faithfulness in this episode of his reign. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, both help us rely completely upon Christ's uh, kingship to defend us against our enemies. And Lord, also show us how we can be Christ-like, how we can be those who defend uh, your people, defend our families, be those who stand up to unrighteousness. Lord, uh, use us to advance your kingdom even more. We ask that you would do this, for we seek the glory of your Son, Jesus, and we pray in his name, and we sing as he taught us to pray.
for our communion exhortation, I'll turn to Song, Song of Solomon 2 in just a moment. But first consider, God deals with sin at this table. Jesus Christ, of course, has dealt with sin once for all on the cross. We don't atone for our sin by eating and drinking here, or by working up repentant feelings hard enough so as to feel worthy. That's not how God deals with our sin here. Instead, God offers us such fullness, such a feast on this table, that it is all that we need, union with our Creator and Savior. Since all things hold together in Christ, what could be better than union with that center? So, taste and see that the Lord is good. But there's a catch. This is such a full and a complete feeding that there's not room in us for both Jesus Christ and our sin. That's how he deals with our sin. We only get to sit at one table, this one or the world's. Where will you be fed? Coming to this table in faith, in the spirit, week after week, the idea is that it pushes out the desire for sin. Continuing in your sin will corrode your desire for this table, and you'll be here less often or with less faithfulness. So Song of Solomon, chapter 2. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. This is the way God deals with his people. Come, let us renew the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we proclaim his faithful deliverance of us that he has not, he will not forsake us. Uh, come to the Lord's table. Uh, we invite you uh, here, all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, by eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you acknowledge you're a sinner, that you are without hope, save in God's sovereign mercy, that you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. The body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T. K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.